This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 176. Hey, veterinary friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. I have a amazing special guest for you today. Her name is Dr. Molly McAllister, and she is the Chief Medical Officer for Banfield uh, Pet Hospital. And she takes care of their culture, talent. She gives them tools um, so they can consistently consistently deliver excellence in high quality medicine for Banfield. And she also works to promote inclusive health and well-being for her veterinary professionals. So I think that our missions are well aligned and I'm super excited to have her here on the podcast. So welcome, Molly. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm so excited to be here. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Yes, I am looking forward to getting to know you and getting to know what you do for Banfield. So can you, I usually ask all my veterinarians, can you just tell me your veterinary story? How detailed or how brief you want to go, but just how did you decide to become a veterinarian and how did you get into this work? Yeah. So, you know, going back to growing up, I had the um, extreme benefit of growing up partially on a a family farm and being exposed to animals of all types as comes along with that environment. And so from a very early age, I was very passionate about animals. That said, um, I had an older sister who wanted to become a veterinarian. And for, you know, I think for some reason, maybe because she had checked that box, I thought, no, that's not for me. I'll do something else. So while I loved animals and I planned that they would be a part of my life and probably a part of my career, I didn't actually set my eyes on veterinary school or, or becoming a veterinarian until much later. In fact, I went into my undergraduate education focused on biology. Um, I had intended perhaps to go into conservation medicine or field biology. And um, once I graduated, I did take a job, uh, started working in field biology, working up in Alaska. And I had a chance to interact with a wildlife veterinarian who was implanting satellite transmitters in migratory birds. Oh, and I, that sounds like fun. It's amazing. So, yeah. you know, I, I was working as a typical field biologist, a lot of observational work. And then this veterinarian came in and was doing this more sort of interventional hands-on work. And I was so interested in it. Um, which, you know, I, why it struck me at that point in time, I'm not sure. But I came away from that job and thought, you know, maybe I, I will look into this. And I started working for a veterinarian and um, they, I enjoyed the work tremendously. And they said, you know, you should just consider applying. Um, most people don't get in their first try. So just apply and see what you think of it. And so I did. And um, lo and behold, I was accepted on my first round. Um, and you know, that's, that's the beginning of the rest of the story. Um, so I think what I, what I will say is that because I came, uh, came into the profession in such a kind of roundabout way, um, it, I came into it with a breadth of possibility in terms of, you know, I didn't vision, envision myself in a specific job doing a specific thing. I just knew I loved the work with animals. I loved the contact with people. I loved the possibility for creating, you know, positive outcomes. And um, that probably has contributed to some of my career in and its diversity. So I'll leave it there. 
<laughs> so did you then go into private practice or how did you end up working for Banfield? How did that come Yeah, um, so, so I went through veterinary school um, with a lot of possibilities at, in mind. I had worked for an equine uh, clinic, an equine practitioner before going to veterinary school. I'd ridden horses competitively. So that was kind of a logical place. Um, I did still have this passion for wildlife in my heart and considered what that would look like. Um, and, you know, and, and then I'll get to eventually I'll get to where I am now, because none of that makes sense based on what I do today. But I did have I had a very impactful conversation in veterinary school with a um, just someone I had had been connected to through my network. Uh, he was a veterinarian for the World Wildlife Fund. And I talked to him about my interest in, in wildlife medicine. And his advice to me was, you know, after you graduate, go out and just practice for a couple of years. He said, you know, it's like, it's like riding a bike. Once you learn how to ride the bike, you'll never forget. And there's such value in just understanding the fundamentals of clinical practice. And so much to, you know, I'd say a little bit to my chagrin, because I was starting to conceive of this very um, unique veterinary career, but I did follow that path. And, and that's probably a little dramatic because I did love clinical work as well. So I went into an equine internship at a private practice, um, had, a, had a great time and actually stayed on at that practice for another six months or so after my internship. But over the course of those 18 months, I did decide that um, I was not meant to have a pager going off every night, that that was not me living my best life. I had a really hard time setting boundaries. And um, I know that's not an uncommon experience for many who choose Very to go common, into that right? you know, yeah. background. I think we so all I suffer from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, yes. And, and when there's a little buzzing thing in your pocket telling you, you should always be thinking about work, it makes it even harder. So recognizing that for me, I needed to create a different um, kind of way of working. I had some conversations with friends in small animal medicine. I took a sort of locum role when someone was on maternity leave at a AHA practice that one of my friends worked at. And I was incredibly scared about making that transition. I have stories of, you know, panic of, I don't know what to do in this case. And, you know, I figured it out and um, went on to continue in small animal practice. I got to fulfill my interest in wildlife medicine by volunteering and eventually working full-time for a wildlife rehab facility. Um, and then after numerous years, I started been looking around for what my next thing would be. And a good friend had been, was working in industry. And she said, you know, you might just consider it. It's got some, some interesting benefits to it. I would have never imagined considering industry as a, as a professional opportunity um, when I was graduating from school. But I submitted my resume to a recruiter. There was a role available. And, you know, within a month or two, I was working for Royal Canaan as one of their scientific services veterinarians. So I was there as an industry veterinarian, um, had a great time, would have, again, never imagined that I would use my veterinary skill set in that type of a way, but I got to, and always had an interest in teaching, and so I got to really lean into learning how to how to teach, how to educate, how to speak publicly, um, had a great time traveling around and seeing just hundreds and hundreds of veterinary clinics and hearing about what was what challenges they were facing, and really enjoyed that, and um, for those who don't know, Royal Canaan is owned by Mars, who also owns Banfield. And so I started to have nice. some overlap with Banfield at that time. And after a few years, I was I was offered an opportunity to come to Banfield and 
uh, lead medical learning for them. And um, so I made that transition. And then within Banfield, I've been here for 10 years now. I'm in my fifth position. Um, so I, I went from medical learning to working in research. Um, we do a lot of electronic medical records, database research. And then about three years ago, I became the chief medical officer. So it's a, it's a um, jungle gym of a career for sure. But what I love is that in every step of the way, I've got to, I've, I've gotten to see how transferable my skills can be. And I've also got to experience the joy of leveraging new skills, learning and leveraging new skills. And that's one of the things that makes me so excited about our profession is because the day, certainly the day I entered veterinary school, I had no idea that this would be the path I would take. And even the day I graduated from veterinary school, I thought, you know, well, I could be in small animal practice or equine practice or maybe something else. I had no idea the breadth of opportunities that would be out there. And so I love talking to people about how you can find the right spot for the right point, you know, for the point of life that you're in. And at the end of the day, as that person told me way back when, I can always go back to clinical practice because I've got those fundamentals yes. in my my tool belt. And so I've never felt like I've closed a door on one on one job to move to the next. I just feel like I'm opening more and more doors of opportunity. And isn't that one of the best things about this profession? I always tell people it's like it's not it it doesn't narrow its focus, it broadens its focus. Like there's so many I, I always think, well, I want to try that and I want to try that. And oh, it would be fun to be an equine vet. You know, you have all these options. Yeah. And when you, you know, when you realize how much we have, how much we know, how much we've learned, but maybe even more importantly, I think most veterinarians have great learning agility. We know how to figure things out. Right. Even if we, you know, if we're faced with a new situation, how many of us have done a surgery with a textbook open on the table? How many of us have done a new procedure with somebody walking us through it on the phone? We are, you know, just, I think inherently good at doing those types of things. And that transfers to any job when you can go in and say, here's what I know, here's what I don't know, and here's what I need to do to complete this job. I mean, you're set up for success in a variety of environments. Yeah, it's really a superpower, isn't it? That we're it's, such problem solvers. I really think that. I mean, I still, yeah. I've, I've been in this so many years and and veterinarians will ask me, people that I coach or people that work with me, newer vets will ask me, well, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? I said, you just you say, I don't know, or you say, mm -hmm. let me find out. And then you go talk to someone else or you look it up or you call a friend or like there's yeah. a million reasons or a million ways to solve a problem. And that's what we're good at. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I also um, understand that you are a big promoter of self-care and um, you get on social media and talk about that. Is that true? Absolutely. Yes. So tell uh, me about that. How'd you get interested in that? Because that's a big yeah. thing for m me and my listeners is self-care. Yeah. You know, I, I, I probably like a lot of people, I, I think I recognized it was maybe I, I subconsciously knew it was important to me. Um, and it was a lot longer down the path before I consciously realized how important it was. So, you know, if I think back to even just the days of, of veterinary school or certainly an internship, um, the way that I got found stress relief, the way that I, you know, made it through those days was for me, it's been very much about finding time for myself. And usually that's some sort of activity, oftentimes outside. So I had the luxury of doing an internship in a beautiful part of Central Oregon where when I had days off, I would go hiking. 
And that was the very best thing to, to rejuvenate and, and refresh my mind. When I was in small animal practice, I used to go running at lunchtime. You know, I'd find there was a little trail and I just, just to get that break in the middle of the day, even if it was only for 20 or 30 minutes was just the way that I could reset. And, you know, like many, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I had struggles as well. Um, you know, being on call in an equine practice as an intern mm. had some low moments. And, you know, as I said, wow. ultimately, it wasn't the right thing for me. And, you know, same thing in small animal practice, as so many as of, of us have dealt with, I can, you know, still th- feel, think back to that stress and anxiety of particular, a particular client interaction or a really heavy day where I walked in and just, you know, just grabbed my dog and hugged him because I was, you know, so just so spent at the end of the day. And so, you know, I think it was probably about three or four years into practice when I started connecting my self-care with my work and recognizing the patterns between the two. And that when I let work take over and I let myself think I didn't have time for self-care, I saw my, you know, my perspective on life, my, my mindset start to deteriorate. And that was when I started realizing that I had to carve out the time. I had to make the time because I couldn't be there for my clients. I couldn't be there for my teammates, for my, you know, my hospital team, if I wasn't there for myself. And that, you know, I, I, I love our colleagues and our profession so much because we are for, for a wide variety of reasons. And one of them is because we are without a doubt, so purpose-driven and so committed to what we do. And I saw in myself, and I still to this day see in many of my colleagues, that the challenge with that is that we push our own needs to the side to fulfill our, you know, to, to, to work towards our purpose, to be committed to others who need us. And so when I started recognizing how important the self-care was for me to be able to be that way day in and day out, that was when I started to consciously talk about it more and to, you know, engage colleagues to say, Hey, come, you know, come for a walk with me after work or, Hey, you're a runner. Let's go running together, you know, and, and try to try to kind of build that community and build that sentiment. And, you know, today in my role, when I, when I'm in a leadership position and have an opportunity to, um, sort of demonstrate my own life, but also importantly, I think, you know, put help, help create systems and processes for others to live their lives in a healthy, you know, well-being filled way. It's even more important to me to be, um, to be vocal about it, to be kind of declarative. And, um, you know, frankly, I, I am um, unapologetic about my need for self-care. You know, today I have a, a big job. I travel a lot. I have two young kids. They're seven and four. They need a lot oh, from yeah. me. They do. You know, full of pets, uh, you know, a spouse, all these things. And it comes back to, I cannot be my best self for them if I don't take that time out for me. And, you know, so I, people who follow me on Instagram, or, you know, know some of the ways that I, I've got some pretty, um, uh, I'm religious about my self-care and and the ways in which I bring it to life. But I also recognize that for everyone, it's different. You know, for me, it's these activities. For someone else, it's reading a book or binge watching a show for others, you know, and that diversity and the um, recognition of everyone being unique is so important. And so at the end of the day, it's just finding out what brings us that 
um, chance to refresh, what brings you that chance to refresh, and then making sure you make time for it. Yeah, and actually scheduling it into your day first. Yes. I, I think sometimes we we think that the self-care is what's left over mm-hmm. rather than that's the that's your primary thing. Absolutely. And then the rest can wait because even, even in a busy veterinary hospital, and I'm sure you see this with the hospitals that you oversee in Banfield, even when the hospitals are super busy, most of the things and most of the clients can wait a little bit. Yeah. You know, you don't have to stay after work to call them back in most instances, you can wait till the next day. And that was something really hard for me to grasp when I first started practicing. I thought I had to complete everything, finish everything, Mm -hmm. make every phone call, you Mm -hmm. know, before I would go home. And that's, that's really, I think what burns us out is not being able to say, okay, this person really needs me right this minute, but the other 10 I can Mm -hmm. call them tomorrow or my tech can call them or I can ask the manager to call them or, you know, you can delegate some of that off of your plate in order to take care of yourself. It's funny because we we are good at triaging our patients and figuring out what needs to be done and what's priority for them. But I think when it comes to our own personal lives, it's harder. (laughs) I I will say my, my friends who know me well know that one of my biggest faults is that I have to so intentionally remind myself. I don't have to answer every email. I did, and I don't have to answer it. You know, the the minute it comes in, that's a lot of my life today. You know, it's yes. just emails and phone calls and, and messages, and um, and that's exactly right. You know, every everything that's on your task list does not have to be completed today, and it may not even have to ever be completed. And learning how to kind of ruthlessly prioritize is such an important part of us being able to be there for what is the most important, what is the top priority. Right. And not fearing that judgment, you know, like I've had clients say, well, she hasn't called me back in two days. And you're like, okay, well, today's the day I'm calling you back. (laughs) And then just like, and just going because now they're getting, they're getting your attention. They're getting what they want and just letting the critiques not stick, you know, because they're busy. They think you should drop everything and see them, but they don't realize that you have a hundred people that think the same yep. and that are all vying for your attention. Yeah. I had, I had to help myself learn to stop telling stories about what other people were thinking Think. about me or what assumptions they were making about me and just yeah. say, you know what? I'm here for them now. And I'm going to be fully present for them. Just like I'm going to be fully present for the next person because I've prioritized because I've, you know, I've put myself first so I can be there for them. And aren't right. they like, <laughs> yeah, aren't they fortunate that they get five minutes of my That's time, right? right? That's right. <laughs> I love that. That's really that is that is what we really need to focus on. So Absolutely. you said something when you were just speaking about diversity of mm-hmm. thought, diversity of activities, all of that. And um I was told that you're on a, a diversity diversify veterinary medicine coalition, if I remember it correctly. So tell me what that is. I did look it up and I kind of read a little bit about it, but tell us what that's all about. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this up. I I love talking about about this work. Um, So the Diversify Veterinary Medicine Coalition, um, affectionately known as the DVMC, is a relatively new group um, that came together at the end of 2020. And so the, the short, sort of short story version is that, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd killing, in which many, there was, there was sort of a social awakening around, around racial injustice and, and what needs to be done, 
Um, we had some conversations within uh, within Mars. So my fellow chief medical officers within the Mars businesses just talked about how diversity was uh, impactful to us, where you know where we saw things positive things, negative things, and, and what role we could play. And frankly, we looked, we talked about our profession and the fact that diversity is a topic that we have been discussing for, you know, at least 20 years. Um, and there have been actions taken, but very little measurable progress. And so we, in our discussion, thought, you know, if, if there's a time to do something, it's past time. And if, if we could make a change, that would feel like a really important thing for us to do. So started with a conversation and then led to just other conversations with others in the industry, because this is something that is about our profession. It's about our industry. It's about our communities and society. It's not about one business. It's far beyond one business. And so we joined a group um, or joined a group together of, of businesses and nonprofits within the profession. And we are now almost 18 months old. We have some great support. So in addition to Mars Veterinary Health being part of the DVMC, we've got Boringer Engelheim, Zoetis, the IDEX Foundation, Royal Canin, Hills, and tech. I'm very proud of these competitive forces who have come to the table together, again, to say this is beyond a business. This is about being the right thing to do. Um, we've got the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association represented, the National Association of Black Veterinarians, um, the AAVMC is there, and Rustin Moore from the Ohio State is part of our board. And so all coming together, and we have members from a variety of other groups, but coming together really with the goal of advancing BIPOC representation in our profession. And I'll pause there for a minute and say, you know, when we talk about diversity, there's a lot of underrepresented groups in veterinary medicine. However, well, one of now, actually now women are higher percentage of our profession than men. So now the men are underrepresented <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? I mean, we can talk about leadership representation as an important piece as well. But um, but we did decide that you, some some work that Banfield had done um, around the future of veterinary medicine really highlighted the fact that we are 90% white. And when we look at the demographics of pet owners and how they're shifting, and we think about how important representation is in delivery of care, at least from what we know from human health care, um, you know, there's kind of a provocation there to say, shouldn't we be more representative of society or at least of pet owners? And why aren't we? And so we did make the decision we wanted as the DVMC to focus on BIPOC representation. But now we're partnering with groups who are, are looking beyond just racial groups and looking at, you know, um, whether we're talking about ethnicity, whether we're talking about gender, you know, there's there's a lot of, of um, ways that we can look at representation in our profession. But to get to the point, so what we're focused on is how we can both contribute to building the pipeline as well as looking at the culture in our profession today. And that, you know, as it relates to health and well-being, that piece is really important. I'll say we're doing some really great work. We've got um, five in, in process applicants for scholarships to undergraduate students at, at historically black colleges and universities who are interested in veterinary medicine. So looking to help remove some of the financial barriers for them before they apply to veterinary school. Um, but to get you know more on, on point with what we're talking about, the other piece we recognize is that culturally, we as a profession have an opportunity 
to not just be more diverse, but to be more inclusive, to be more equitable, ultimately to be a place where people feel that they belong. And when you start talking about diversity in that way or DEI in that way, I think that's really impactful because that goes beyond a person's um, you know, physical appearance or their, their identification. It really goes back to the fact that we are in a fantastic profession. And when we feel like we can come to work and be our authentic selves and feel like we belong there, actually this is true of any workplace, not just in veterinary medicine, but when we have that sentiment, that's a place where people really thrive. And to me, what it all comes back to is we're here for this amazing purpose to help pets, to help the people that love them. We deserve to thrive. You know, we deserve to really be able to, to feel like we can sustainably, we can sustain our careers and that we can have a fulfilling life and, and prioritize our well-being. And that idea of a culture of belonging where we accept each other is critical to that. So, so it's kind of a long roundabout way, but it really all does tie together to accepting that veterinary, the veterinary profession is for so many, and there's so many ways to uh, to be in this profession. And we want to create that culture where we we acknowledge, accept, include, and all feel belong like they belong. Yeah, yeah, I love that because so many times when we're talking about diversity, we get so focused on one aspect of a human and the, and humans are so diverse individually, let alone, you know, their thoughts, it, let alone those other characteristics that you can see. So I like the fact that it's trying to open the profession up to make everyone feel like they belong together, regardless of the differences that we either see on the outside or or talk about and and not trying to exclude a group to include another. Yeah. 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 You know, it really it's like um it, it's like an extrapolation of the human animal bond. You know, so many of us were drawn to the human animal bond because of that sense of connection, that sense of belonging with our pet. You know, we our pet accepts us as we are. And so to me it just makes sense that the next step is that if we're a profession of people here to honor that bond, then we need to create that sort of environment among the people we work with as well, the people we engage with as well. Because what a, you know, what, what a fantastic world it would be if we all felt like you know everybody looked at us with the love that our dog looks at us with, or that everybody you know greeted us with that sort of excitement. If we could just bottle that and sell it to the world, right? There would be world right. peace. There would right. everyone would take care of each other. Yeah, right. I love that. That is that is the goal, right? Yeah, yeah. Have us all all work together. Yeah, that's but really I will, cool. I will say, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of our profession and the the number of groups, grassroots to corporate to, you know, AVMA coming on board to really say, we are entering a new phase and we are evolving as a profession dramatically. And it's time that we really approach that evolution intentionally to say, what do we want the future of this profession to be like? Because it has so much potential. There are things that don't work perfectly there. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like we still kind of work in a model that was developed maybe 50 years ago that doesn't quite fit the veterinarians of today in all ways. And so what a great opportunity for us to now create what the next phase of veterinary medicine will look like. And for those of us who, you know, are, are kind of working our way through day by day to say, this is what I need, this is what I want, and this is what I'm going to build with my colleagues so that future veterinarians will be able to thrive. 
as yeah. well. So what do you see as that evolution? Like I, I see from the mm-hmm. time I got out of school, you know, there were a lot fewer women, obviously, and that's changed. There were a lot fewer women owners and that's changed. Um, now it seems to be that our schedules are changing. Like people don't want to work as long hours. So we're closing earlier. Um, there's more emergency clinics, although they're kind of getting overburdened. Like, what do you see as that the next part of that evolution? Is it about self-care and human animal bond or I I think think we're working on? I think it definitely is. You know, the way I think about it, I think there's really, to me, three pieces to it. The first is about who we are as a, as a workforce. And I hate that. I actually hate that word because I don't think any of us view ourselves as part of a workforce. We're here because of our, we're passionate. But it is and, work. And, it, is it is work. work. And we do make money and we should make money. That's true. Oh so, yeah, that's important. Yes. But it, um, but our, our workforce has changed so much to your point, whether it's um, the role of women, whether it's just changing generations and looking at the difference between a baby boomer and a Gen Z it's not right or wrong. It's just the reality of the people making up the profession today are vastly different than who made up the profession 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so we have to think about our ways of working, you know, our hours of working, the way a day flows, the flexibility we do or don't have. We have to think about that differently. And I think what's, what's challenging about that is that in today's world, that is not a one size fits all. It's not going to be, oh, the perfect practice is open from 10 to four, Monday through Thursday. You know, it's, it's not, it's not that simple. Um, but I, I, I have a lot of hope that we have, you know, again, diversity brings strength. So we have so many different practices, so many different ways of operating. How can we work together? How can we collaborate to both learn what works best, but also create a variety of opportunities so that a person, you know, a veterinarian, a veterinary professional can find the situation that works best for them and recognize also, I, I feel particularly strong about this as women, but it, you know, I'm sure it applies for anyone. Different life stages bring different needs. So That's being absolutely a, true. Yeah. Being a new graduate is different from being, you know, a confident five to 10 year out practitioner, which is different from being a new parent, which is different from being someone who's taking care of your parents and, you know, part of a sandwich generation. And so I, again, I firmly believe, you know, I I work for Banfield, we have a specific model, and I by no means believe that it's the only or best model, because it is a model that works in, for for some veterinarians, and for others, they, they need something different. So, so I think that that ways of working piece or that that environment in which we work is something that's going to have to that that is shifting and that we're going to have to continue to lean into to say what's possible what are people asking for and how do we make this work I think the other piece is uh, or one of the second piece would be the role of pets in society is changing I mean I don't have to tell you know anybody in the veterinary profession that but the way true you know, our clients feel differently about their pets and the way they want to engage with us today than they did 30, 50 years ago. And so, you know, that's a little bit less of my bailiwick in terms of where I spend my time. But I will say, you know, figuring out how we leverage telemedicine, how we can and be there in a, in a more personalized way that, that many clients are looking for, particularly younger generations. You know, how can we be there for them in a way that works for them? So I think we're going to have to rethink how we deliver care 
to some degree. And then the third piece, and, and this is you know definitely getting out of my um, my wheelhouse in terms of education, but something I'm really passionate about is around just the the economics. You know, you mentioned this is work, and we deserve to be paid for it, and that is absolutely true. And I think we have to to explore and and innovate when it comes to how we how the economics of our profession work because it's everything from we are highly educated you know as veterinarians highly educated and, and technicians and fulfill a very important role that you know I don't think we we're equitably paid as it relates to other professions in similar roles right and there's a lot of pet owners there that have financial challenges and we can't make access to care um, or we can't make care inaccessible because it's so costly so to me, that, that goes back to opportunity. How do we think outside the box? Where do we use telemedicine? Where do we use veterinary technicians? Where do we use you know, other ways of delivering care to help defray some costs? And how do we lean into the fact that our time is very valuable and we shouldn't be apologetic for charging for our time? The solution is not for everybody to go do free work, but there's other solutions out there that I, I believe the business world has, uh, has to lean into, has a responsibility to innovate in, to say, how do we do this differently? So we take care of pets, we take care of the families that love those pets, and we take care of the veterinary professionals and teams so that they can continue to provide the care. So yeah, and, and that's a big problem, right? That's a that's a that's a really difficult balancing act. So, is that something that you, in particular, work on those ideas at Banfield? Because that's something you're involved with. Because you you did have you have had um, contact with human animal bond, and that that you were on the board, I believe, something like that, right? I was on the board of the Human Animal Bond Association, and I'm on right. the board. Uh, yeah, a different group called Pet Peace of Mind that operates in that same space. Um, and I'd say this past um, past year, I've been doing some presentations at the major conferences around health equity and looking at um, right now, very preliminary, but looking at just the major metropolitan areas, leveraging the Banfield database and looking at the prevalence of some zoonotic diseases and, and comparing veterinary care deserts to more control areas. And, and you know, just looking at health disparities between pets that come from veterinary care deserts versus those pets that live in an area that's surrounded by a lot of, you know, access to care. And there's a lot that goes into that. That's probably, you know, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> that's another podcast. <laughs> yes. but, but what I will say, you know, in terms of what I'm involved with at Banfield is, um, as I mentioned first, how do we leverage our other veterinary professionals to the greatest degree possible, particularly our veterinary technicians? And that's been something I've been really passionate about um, at Banfield. So just two years ago, just at the beginning of 2020, we launched sort of official veterinary technician appointments across our hospitals, um, encouraging our veterinary technicians to work at the top of their license as appropriate as dictated by their state laws and within the comfort of the supervising veterinarian, but right. just saying you can do this and we're going to make it possible, you know, with our scheduler and and have that um, the systems there to support it. And so we started in 2020. So Banfield has about a, a little over a thousand hospitals. So when we started in 2020, we were delivering about 2,000 veterinary tech appointments a week. So you know, roughly two per hospital, although that wasn't quite how they were spread out. Um, last year, we delivered 658,000 
appointments through veterinary technicians at Banfield. So the need and the opportunity for the, for that type of service for our clients has been has proven to be huge. Yes. And what I love about it is that our clients are able to get in sooner because we have you know now have another professional who can see them if it's something simple like a vaccine boost unit. Again, there's there's some nuances here of making right. sure big choice, but our clients get in sooner. Our technicians love it. We've had technicians say, you know, I was thinking about going somewhere else. I wanted to, or specializing, but now that I get to do these appointments, I'm so happy. And our doctors are seeing that it takes, you know, takes some weight off of their shoulders as well, because they're building this stronger relationship with their technician. They're able to delegate more work to them. And, and so when I look at the opportunity for our profession, you know, you think about human healthcare. This is why they developed the PA and the, the physician's assistant and nurse practitioners, because yes. there were these underserved areas that couldn't get primary care practitioners to, to go to. And they, they, I won't say they solved the problem, but that was a big relief for the human healthcare profession. So I believe that's a natural progression for us to make as well. There's some debate about that out there, I know, but I will say oh, that. I, you know, I, I think tech appointments are amazing. Like we, we've been doing that for years and, um, you know, obviously you have to have the exams, like you have to balance that with the doctors, but I really do think that that is a, a definite opportunity for practices that don't do that to yep. increase their income, give their technicians more autonomy, more authority so they feel more useful and and like you said really stretch them um, as far as their license allows them to go yep yep i agree and I, you know and, and ultimately then i think that that gives you a situation where you you can provide some services at a lower cost you know and and, and we've started to think out of the box for example in states that will allow it we've in georgia we have a hospital that is um, for the most part, solely manned by technicians because Georgia law allows them to be um, overseen with indirect supervision. So they've got nice. a veterinarian on the, you know, on the phone available at all times. Um, but that's an interesting model, you know. And, and again, we have to have guardrails, quality of medicine, safety of the pet has right. to be first and foremost. But when you think about how many pets don't receive adequate care, we're going to have to push our boundaries because us working harder is not is not a solution, you know, to yeah. see more pets. And the other piece of, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, no, cause I'm gonna switch a little bit. So okay. say what you were gonna say. You know, and then the other piece that I'm involved with at Banfield is looking at how we can use telehealth, telemedicine to help extend our reach as well. And again, it's not a cure-all, it's gotta have guardrails in place, but there are situations where we can have that, you know, a, particularly a pet you see regularly, do they need to come in and have the, the, you know, cost of goods associated with an appointment and the staffing, or is it something that you can talk, you can talk to them over the phone, do a video call and, and be able to help them. So we've, we've got work to do to really make these, you know, to create more solutions and to make them truly impactful, but I'm, I'm optimistic as to where we're going. Yeah. So you, your opinion is if we can do better in those arenas that we might be able to make our care more available to pets that don't necessarily receive it. How do you feel those moves are gonna affect our profession as far as job openings and things like that? Because my concern yeah. right now is we don't have enough technicians. Yeah. Um, obviously we don't have enough veterinarians. We're, we're all struggling to hire them. How are we gonna fill that gap? Because I think that's, yeah really important. And I'm hoping that corporations are going to help with that. 
Is Van Hill doing something to try to encourage more veterinarians, more technicians to get into yeah. the profession? Yes. So you know, for, I'll first, let me go to the technician in a minute. I'll, I'll, okay. To first, I'm just telemedicine. You know, I, I think, number one, I think it's a great call out because we, we need, ultimately, we need to recruit more professionals into, whether it's technicians or veterinarians, into our profession. <clears throat> what, I, what I do love about the opportunity with telemedicine is that, um, particularly given the demographics of our profession, there are a lot of, a, a significant number of veterinarians who are working um, less than they might be because of home needs, family needs, et cetera. You know, so that, to me, the perfect yes. example is when I was out on maternity leave, you know, there was a period of time where I would have actually probably enjoyed the mental engagement of working two or three days a week or sorry, or um, you know, while the baby was napping, but that wasn't, that wasn't an option or nor was that practical. Right. If I was able to do some tele telehealth, telemedicine consults from home, you know, and I mean, we, for better or for worse, we do have a lot of people in our profession from a, you know, either a medical standpoint, they're not able to lift pets. They're not able to work in a clinic in, in the physical clinical environment. So I, I wonder, and I haven't been able to quantify yet, but what, uh, what workforce potential is there again, yes. really, really sterile term, but if we were able to work from home, you know, how many so. well, people or, or people later in their career, yeah. you know, that are getting ready to retire, maybe they could work longer yeah. if they were not rustling, you know, 80 pound dogs on the floor. Because I, in my practice, I see that a lot. I have, I have some older technicians that work with me and they have a harder time getting up and down off the floor. They have a harder time wrestling with the big pets. So potentially, are they going to have more opportunity? And I think that's a really good point that we don't all think about when we talk about telemedicine is, is it going to expand our workforce? And I think yeah. in a lot of ways it might. Yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful with that. And then to the piece of, of veterinary technicians, you know, I think they're, they're yes. So I would say Banfield is, is um, very active in, in thinking about how we can expand our veterinary technician force, um, recognizing, you know, we'd love more veterinarians as well, but we take, we take longer to create. Um, and the technician route is, is such a valuable one. And so we're working in partnership with a few new technician schools, trying to figure out how we can improve, um, the, I'll say Im improve the, maybe palatability isn't quite the right word, but improve the success rate of some of the online programs, recognizing that, you know, that is a, more feasible route for many who want to become a technician to do so. Um, and we have some opportunities to make that smoother, to ensure the quality is there, to help those students get through their training. So Banfield's really focused in that space. Um, and I'd say, you know, from a, from a bigger standpoint, it's also how do we make the veterinary technician role more appealing and more sustainable as a career? And that's actually, yeah, financially. financially and yeah. And I think, like you said, giving them, um, using their talents, using their brain power, using, you know, not just having them be glorified pet holders. Exactly. Like I like mine to do anesthesia and the dentistry. And like, I, I want them to do as much as they possibly can. I agree. And, you know, and that's engaging. No one wants to go to work and say, you know, we're only going to have you do 50% of what you can do. That's not, right. that's not fun. And so, so I think what's interesting and complicated in that space is that it's all these little bits of movement forward. You know, it's, it's, you've got to push this whole herd of cats slowly, you know, slowly forward as it relates to veterinary technicians, not to mention some of the regulatory landscape challenges that, you know, that exist in some states 
um, or just in having some some standardization so that it's not so variable from state to state. So I'd say you know we're kind of, we're active in all of those spaces. And to me, the most important thing we can do today is to make sure that each and every technician is you know able to utilize their license to the degree that they that they're comfortable. And whether that's you know that they prefer surgery and anesthesia, or whether they prefer client appointments, or they want to go get. Um, you know, some additional nutrition certification or a vet tech specialty, anything we can do to encourage them in that space is what we're doing today, what's front and center today, and then trying to build those pathways to encourage more to come into the profession and make it easier for them to do so. Yeah. So what's your advice? I'm going to turn a little bit, but it kind of Mm -hmm. relates to this. What is your advice to either veterinarians or veterinary technicians that are feeling burned out or overwhelmed by this profession like my mission is to change that so what advice can we give them to make a difference so they either want to stay in veterinary medicine or they find their love they get their love back for this yeah because we all got into it because we loved it right that's right. That's right. No one came into this because we thought we were going to get a lot of prestige or, or fame or money. And that's, you know, and that's why we're such a great profession. So to me, I'd say, you know, I think there's really, there's an internal component to what we can do. And then there's more of an external component. And to me, from the internal component, I think there's a big opportunity around mindset. And I don't want to make it sound simple because I've had, you know, I've had my own challenges. Shifting your mindset is incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I was recently um, listening to a presentation that I thought was really impactful around stress. And the speaker was talking about, was actually presenting questions to the audience. Is stress good for you? Does stress, you know, does stress help you learn? Does stress help you? It, and it was a group of veterinarians. And so I think the mindset of most was to go immediately to the negativity of stress. You know, no, I don't learn well with stress. It's not good for my, long, my long-term health and well-being. And then I, I kind of had this light bulb go off. And for some reason, I started thinking about viewing stress from a physiological or, or I should say a, a musculoskeletal standpoint. We all know that you don't strengthen your muscles. You don't build strong bones unless you put stress on them. And that stress is actually good for building strength and building resilience. And that was, you know, just that little comment was really impactful for me to think about a clear example of how the way we think about stress influences how we respond to it. And so when we think about, you know, the end of a day in a clinic, I've been there. I know that it's so easy to say, well, this client was mean and this client, you know, didn't want to pay for anything. And this client declined everything and just wanted the free exam. And, you know, dun, 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 and you think about all the, all the challenges that you face during the day. And rarely do we end the day and think, oh, wasn't, you know, Mr. Jones amazing. Wasn't that nice. fun? You know, and, and so I think that switch intentionally switching the mindset. And I heard this idea recently, which I loved, which is, huddling with your team at the end of the day to say, you know, let's call out a couple of things that were really hard today and let's, let's call them out and then let's let them go and that, you know, let them be gone. And then let's call out together some of the really positive things that happened today so that we're ending the day, really thinking about what went well, what we enjoyed about the day. It's, you know, I actually do this with my kids at the end of the day. We do sweets and sours mm-hmm. every day. You have to have a sweet. 
you can have a sour. You don't have to have a sour, but you do have to have a sweet. And it's just that idea of practicing some gratitude and having that mindset around there's a lot of positive things here and I need to intentionally acknowledge them in my career. So again, you know, I don't want to diminish the challenges, you know, the stress, the anxiety that are very real to so many people. I'm not trying to to glaze over those with, you know, sugar and and rainbows, but it's just that piece that that day-to-day practice of gratitude, of finding the positive actually does make a difference. It's a, it's a muscle that we can build. It's a practice, it's work. It's something that you can actually take action to do to make your life better, to make you feel better, to work on yourself. And I think, you know, we all have this idea that life's supposed to be all, you know, all sweet. (laughs) And and what you're teaching your children is it's normal to have sour and that's okay. And, And, but you don't have to dwell on it. So I I think that just realizing that there's both, and then if you're really stuck in the negative to try to work out of it, I like your exercise analogy. It's just, it's something that can be done and should be done. And it's something that should be part of your self-care, I think. Yep. Yep. And taking that longer view of, you know, and you just, you just mentioned it again, it's when we have those really hard days, they're, they're hard and they do, they do make us stronger. In the right. long run, I am, you know, I'm so much more resilient as a veterinarian today than I was sure. in those first six months of practice where a bad day, you know, could just reduce me to tears. And, and that's part of building strength. So that's, to me, that's the internal piece. The external piece, as you and I started talking about early on is rec- the recognition that there are so many opportunities in this profession. I mean, I've had an incredibly varied career and I still am surprised when I hear about this veterinarian doing, you know, this, that, or the other. Uh, You know, in in Banfield alone, we've got veterinarians, of course, working in our hospitals. We've got them working centrally. We've got them working on our marketing team, um, you know, with client education. We've got them working on our HR team with doctor recruiting. We've got them working on our IT team, helping to create, you know, build our software system, improve our software system to be better for hospital teams. Uh, And we have technicians in all of those places as well. That's just at Banfield. And so when people are struggling, the thing that's been most powerful for me throughout my career is to recognize how important my network is and how welcoming people are to outreach or with just questions of, hey, I see, you know, you're doing this job or you have this job. Will you tell me a little bit about it? And um, learning what opportunities there are. You know, I, I stepped out of practice by a friend saying, just send your resume to a recruiter. I never in my entire life would have imagined that me as a veterinary professional would use a recruiter, but I, you know, but I did. And it's more common today, but I, you know, every job I'd ever had before then was, oh, I knew somebody who knew of a job and, you know, I just went and had an interview. Um, And so the, the possibilities and the opportunities are, I would say beyond what any individual can imagine. And you can only open those doors by starting to explore talk to people, hear what those jobs are like, decide if it might be interesting to you. And, you know, and then as we said early on, I think I encourage people, you know, if you're interested, take the leap, try it. You can always go back to clinical medicine or whatever you were doing before. Doors don't slam shut when you take a new opportunity. And there's just such um, variety and diversity in this profession. And so I just encourage when people are feeling like, 
they're stuck to, you know, grab a friend and have that friend start, you know, helping you open the doors if you need it, because nobody is stuck in this industry. And the thing that's been most valuable to me is conversations. And I love it when people reach out to me and just say, hey, Molly, you know, I'm thinking about leaving clinical practice. What ideas do you have? And, you know, it's, it's a great conversation. What are you passionate about? Let me introduce you. You know, I've got three people I can introduce you to. And that's not just me. I, that is true across you know, across our profession, people are so open to creating, uh, to creating pathways, to creating networks, to creating connections. And so you're never reach out. Well, and I would add that if you're in clinical practice and you're, and you're a little nervous about leaving it totally, you can experiment while still working. I was on veterinary boards. I was on my local board. I was on my state board. I've um, been on committees, I've helped plan CE events, like those little trickles out, I was still in my practice, I was still working, but I was able to volunteer on these positions that broaden my horizons in veterinary medicine. I met so many amazing veterinarians, I, I met so many people in industry. Also, I volunteered at, we have leader dogs near me, um, and they have a veterinar- two veterinarians on staff, but they need you know, volunteers to do spays and neuters and examine puppies. And so if you're feeling stale or overwhelmed or whatever in your daily practice, there are those opportunities as well, where you don't have to leave. If you don't want to, you can stay, but you can also like branch out and see what differences there are. Cause who doesn't love to go to leader dogs and vaccinate whole buckets full of puppies. It was, it was a blast. And I did it on my day off and it kind of rejuvenates your love for your profession if you're feeling stale in your job. So, you know, just those, those things, just thinking outside the box, it will help. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes we just need one of those days to, you know, be able to shift your perspective and last you for months to come. And I, I just, again, I just love that about this profession is there's so much to do that is so heartwarming and fulfilling and you can leverage all sorts of skills and interests to bring it to life. Yeah. And you don't have to quit and go to a whole different profession because yep. I tell people when I'm coaching them, I'm like, other professions have crap too. <laughs> and most of them, you have to deal with people. And most of our crap comes from the people. So jumping out of vet med and going to another profession, you're kind of just going to deal with similar people just That's in right. a different venue, I guess. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So. Yes, this is a good place. And again, we're, we're changing. There's so much evolution taking place. And so to me, you know, feeling like you want something to be different is just a sign that you need to be at the table helping us shape the future of, you know, what it is you want to see out of our profession. Right. Yeah, I love that. So is there anything else that I didn't ask you that we need to talk about? I'm trying to, I don't I, to keep you all day. I could because I'm having <laughs> such a good time. <laughs> I this is fantastic. And, and, you know, I just, um, I'll just go back to, you know, I'm, I'm a real optimist about our profession and where we can, when people are so I love that. I love the optimism. I'm trying to, can we grow that somehow? How do we, <laughs> how do we make that grow? Maybe this, this podcast will help, right? I think we can, you know, and, and my, my ask of the people I run into is, is to help you know, when you find those, those, when you find, if you're an optimist or when you find those sparks that really make you feel excited, 
share them. You know, and it, some people stay off of social media for their own well-being, and I totally respect that. But, you know, I think we have such great venues to share the positivity. And whether it's sharing it on social media, whether it's just going to a local veterinary meeting and sharing, you know, a great client interaction you have, that is contagious. Yes. And that mindset is contagious. And and so the more that we can do that, it not only helps us, you know, don't you feel better at the end of the day when you get to tell a happy story than when you oh, tell yeah. the story about, you know, when you're when you were upset. And so not only does it help us, but it helps others. And so how can we kind of start this movement of spreading, you know, spreading the contagiousness of, of optimism, spreading the, the, the joy of what this profession is, and, and then make more of it? Because the last thing we are is stuck with where we are, you know, what, what the profession is today. It's just a matter of helping to create something new, whether it's in your own practice, helping, you know, hey, what if we did things this way? Hey, what if we made some changes? It's amazing how much, you know, you can, anyone can come to the table and help drive change. And so I just, I just encourage people, you know, don't feel like you have to sit back and be a victim of what happens to you. Step in, you know, be empowered and help us create that, that even more positive future for our profession. Because what a, fabulous reason to be here, you know, to help pets, to help the people that love them and to help one another find the fulfillment that's possible in this profession. Oh, I love it. I couldn't have said it any better. That's perfect. So that's a good place to end. So okay. if someone wants to get a hold of you, are you willing? And if so, where can they find you? Absolutely. I am more than willing. So you feel free to, you can email me directly, molly.mcallister at banfield.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, just under my name. Um, you can find me on Instagram. It's malls, M-O-L-L-S, um, M-C-D-V-M. So malls, McDVM. You can find me there, send me a DM. Um, and I am more than happy. I love chatting with people about, you know, self-care, about career opportunities. Um, it's, again, a great place to be. And I love to share ideas with people. That's great. I love it. Okay. All right. Well, I really appreciate, so much, I appreciate you being here so much. It was really fun. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll do this again, because I'm sure, we, I'm sure we could go on for hours and talk about this because yes. our missions are so well aligned. Like yes. we, we really want to want to see this profession succeed and, and thrive. Yes. And I, think it, I think we are like, I think it's happening. I do. I do too. I mean, I, I, um, I'm, I'm glad to connect with you because I've been kind of stirring around this idea of how do we help those who are really feeling optimistic? How can we come together? How can we create that community so that we can continue to further spread? Yeah. We need like an optimist club or something. Maybe <laughs> do, do. Okay, you and I'll start that. I love it. I love it, Julie. Look That's for us on social media. Molly and I are starting the optimist veterinary club or something. I don't know. I love it. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a great step into our future. So, All right. well, I really appreciate you being here. It was great meeting you and so fun to talk to you. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Everybody have a beautiful week. Bye. Bye, Bye Molly. Bye.